0: You're listening to Ono oh No Lit Class, dead authors, fresh takes,
1: and the epilogues you never knew you needed.
0: Ono oh Lit Class, the podcast that rejects the cold, unfeeling technology of Kindles and e-readers in favor of experiencing stories the way they were intended to be, chanted at you by ancient Greek men. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And today, we are going to be fulfilling some expectations.
1: Don't set the bar so high.
0: I said j- j- expectations. I didn't say what kind of expectations they were.
1: Don't set the bar. No bar. No bar.
0: Barless. What are your expectations, RJ?
1: Of what exactly?
0: Of, I guess, of of life? Of literature? Of a man named Charles Dickens?
1: Oh, Chucky Dicky.
0: Chucky Dicky? Like, wouldn't it be like Chucky D or something like that? Or Charlie D? C. Dicky? C. Dicks. Uh,
1: Nah, Chucky (laughs) Dicky.
0: Sure, alright, fine. (laughs) We can do that, I guess. Well?
1: Oh, we can agree. And then we'll moderate expectations. (laughs)
0: as we go so well yeah what are, what are your expectations
1: i don't know if i have any i i know how this turns out
0: <laughs> i see actually yeah that's true for all that rj doesn't read stuff he's actually pretty well versed in the world of charles
1: dickens chucky d
0: the world of chucky d chucky wait you said chucky dicky a second ago see dicky <laughs> at least stick with it Jeez.
1: chucky d's these chucks
0: you keep making me think of chucky e. cheese every time you do that
1: no don't, don't do that that's sad it is oh we don't know what's happening to E. cheese no chucky is no more now it's just cheese <laughs> what <laughs>
0: if, you e. che- if you go to a chucky if e. you
1: go to a chucky cheese chucky's not there anymore oh there's just cheese there
0: like, like is he not the mascot? What do they call it? Chuck E. Cheese now?
1: Oh, it's so called Chuck E. It's Cheese, just, just but there geez. but there is no physical representation of Chucky anymore. He's just not there. Huh? Yeah.
0: Did did he die?
1: No, they just branding. Yo, know, it's like uh, Dunkin'.
0: Oh yeah, that's the thing now, huh?
1: Formerly known as
0: Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah. Except instead of becoming like that, would have been like a Dunkin' Donuts. It switched its name to just Donuts. Don't. Actually, no, not even, because then Chuck E. Cheese would be called, like, Pizza Ball Pit instead of just
1: cheese. This is a good time to say this episode of Oh No Look Class is brought to you by the good people at Chuck E. Cheese and Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs>
0: this episode is brought to you by no one. The, the, the fact that any sponsor would ever court us is hilarious to all 12 of our listeners. You, Dickens, pals, buds, bros even. No. Is Charles Dickens not in your graduate thesis? Yes. Well, then.
1: So are others.
0: Well, you could be bros with them, too. It's not a mutually exclusive bro relationship. I suppose. All right, so Charles Dickens is a pervasive figure throughout literature and pop culture. Is he? Yeah. Even if you ain't never read a Dickens, you know, like, a fucking Christmas Carol, or you've at least seen the Muppet version of a Christmas Carol, where Kermit is, like, Bob Cratchit and Piggy's there somewhere. I don't know. They're- they're Muppets. I think Scrooge is played by a human man. But anyway, you- you know the- did that? You know the Oliver twist? With the orphan boys who want some more? And, oh, they uh, want some
1: more, alright. <laughs> they could never have enough.
0: Gross, I don't even- we're not gonna follow that one to its inevitable conclusion. Oh! Uh-
1: Sir! Sir! May I have another-
0: I want some more! You can't even do your gross joke right. (laughs) Jesus.
1: Please, sir. May I have some more?
0: No, it's too late. You fucked it up. Give it to me. (laughs) So even if you've never had to, if you've never read a Dickens book, you have interacted with his work in some way. You just, you can't exist in at least Western pop culture without... Getting some kind of exposure to it. But we're not talking about Christmas Carol or Oliver Twist today. We're talking about Great Expectations, which is eh, a little less well-known, still pretty fairly known. I don't know. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. But before we can get to that, we got, RJ's going to tell us a thing about Checky D.
1: Yes. Today we'll talk about that hot piece of ass known as Charles Dickens.
0: I mean, he does kind of have some bedroom eyes, but, uh... Well, I mean, your choices are your own.
1: Born Charles John Huffam Dickens.
0: <laughs> Huffam.
1: <'em>. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he lived the 7th of February, 1812 to the 9th of June, 1870. He's regarded by many as, you know, no big deal. Just like the best writer of the Victorian era. He was very popular during his lifetime, and post-death, critics and scholars continue to laud him with praise, calling him a, quote, literary genius. Well, is this real news or fake news? Let's find out.
0: Is this a thing you're doing now?
1: No. Chucky <laughs> <laughs> was born in Portsmouth, England. He was the second of eight children to Elizabeth and John Dickens. Daddy Dickey was a uh, clerk in the Navy pay office. Mommy Dickey was a homemaker. Biographers say Chucky's early childhood was idyllic, though he never thought himself a, quote, very small and not over-particularly taken care of boy.
0: Not particularly over-taken care of?
1: That's how he uh, referred to himself later on in life. As a a mouthful. A very small and not overly-particularly taken care of boy. By the time Chucky was 12... Daddy Dickens had run up quite the debt with creditors and was forced into the Marshall C. Debtor's Prison in London. It was 1824, and debtor prisons were still kind of a thing.
0: I mean, it was more than still kind of a thing. They were still very much a thing.
1: Yes. <laughs> Daddy Dickens got sent to one. Yeah,
0: you, you, you too poor, you go to the poor people jail Tell you ain't poor no more. Oh, except, you know, guess what? You're probably going to be poor forever. Enjoy prison.
1: The cycle. Chucky was sent to live with Elizabeth Roy Lance, a family friend. Later, he lived in a back attic in a house of an agent for the insolvent court. The man was named Archibald Russell.
0: What the hell is the insolvent court?
1: I'm assuming the court that his dad was being sued in for being poor and a debtor. Because if you're insolvent, means you don't got money. Ah. Uh, Archibald Russell was described by Chucky as a, quote, fat, good-natured, kind old gentleman with a quiet old wife and a lame son
0: (laughs) it's just such a weird like he was a he was a fat kind guy with an old quiet wife and a son whose legs didn't work
1: so in order to make ends meet and survive while he was being boarded chucky dropped out of school so he could work 10 hour days at warren's blacking warehouse where he earned six shillings a week pasting labels on pots of boot blacking Say that six times uh, fast. No, really.
0: Pasting labels on pots of boot blacking. No, it's really not that hard. You just have a heart. You just suck at words.
1: No. In short, the job sucked, especially for a child. And Dickens never moved on from the memories of the job and the conditions as it later influenced his fiction as well as his essays. It is of little surprise that Chucky became interested in socioeconomic and labor conditions and became politically active to end such conditions for children.
0: It's true. He was. He was a fucking warrior for justice. He, like, campaigned tirelessly for children's rights and education and not having them, you know, lose their little fingers in factories and stuff like that.
1: Where'd they go? What do you mean? Well, you said they lost them. Did they ever find them?
0: Nope. Gone forever. Where'd they go? No one knows. Oh. It is possibly the greatest English mystery.
1: So, Chucky never received a formal education due to Daddy Dickens doing hard time at the pokey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At one point, the warehouse Chucky worked in moved into the city and had windows installed that looked out into the street. But more importantly, it meant people in the street could look into the warehouse and watch the children work. Apparently, people would just stand there and, like, gawk at the children as they worked. Like, get a load of this fucker. He's just working on pasting shit on the bootblack black all day.
0: Look at that tiny little child work himself to death.
1: Yeah, they would make faces at him and shit like that. Sure, let's
0: get get ice cream cone and watch the children suffer.
1: Shockingly, this uh, public display made the pain of the job all the more poignant for little Chucky.
0: Who would have guessed?
1: Eventually, Chucky's dad, against Megan's belief, managed to pay off his debts and got out of prison.
0: How, though? How do you pay off your debts if you're in debt prison?
1: Works it off. Breaking stones or whatever they do in debtor's prison i guess despite the good news chucky's mom did not let him return home and thought it was wise for chucky to continue his child labor ways
0: of course builds character
1: yeah don't come home son there's seven other of yous running around uh, you stay away there's too many yeah yeah seven is enough
0: people be having babies yeah.
1: chucky wrote later in life quote i never afterwards forgot i never shall forget i never can forget That my mother was warm for my being sent back to the warehouse.
0: Oh my God.
1: You you thought he was going to be okay with this?
0: No, it's not that I thought he was going to be okay with it. It's just like a really fucking, the way he puts it, which I mean, I get, he's a writer after all, but just like shit. If that doesn't make you feel sad, then you're a jackass.
1: Mommy didn't want her 12 year old to stop slaving away in the window filled warehouse where people gawked at him. (sighs) Bringing in them six shillings those, those,
0: a week. Six shillings. Baller money.
1: Yeah. It is a little surprise, given uh, this time of his life, that Dickens proclaims that Oliver Twist is the most autobiographical of his works. Oh, He really wanted another. Or some more. <laughs> or a little bit of everything.
0: Yeah, I mean, he probably wanted a bunch of shit.
1: Luckily, at the age of 15, Chucky was able to land a gig at a law firm as a junior clerk. There were much better working conditions, and he was able to actually manage to stick around working there for two years. Early on in his career, Chucky tried to break into theater. He knew he wanted fame. He was just not sure how to achieve it. However, theater was not for Chucky. He didn't have the face for it. Have you seen that guy?
0: It's a normal looking face. (laughs) He's not like, I don't think he's absurdly like unattractive or anything. He's a pretty average looking dude. Like I said, he's got bedroom eyes, which is a bit weird, but I don't know.
1: And that fucking Thomas from two oh weeks ago. Oh, my
0: God. It's actually something. <laughs> Joe wrote me about that saying that you were wrong and that he thought Thomas was a lovely looking boy. But uh... Thomas,
1: you're probably still dead. I forget your last name. LaFroy. Lefroy. Thomas <laughs> Lefroy, This goes out to you as your spirit hovers around the earth.
0: Hi, Joe. Roger thinks you're wrong.
1: The next thing Chucky tried was journalism. This went much better for him. He began to also publish some fictional pieces. Early critics of Dickens' works complained about the names Chucky used to name his characters. Yeah. Specifically, they complained the names were, quote, just too damned queer.
0: But everybody remembers these fucking Dickens' names. You got your Ebenezer Scrooge, your Oliver Twist, your Tiny Tim, your Artful Dodger, your Fagin, your Pip, your... Other ones that are going to be in here that I don't want to ruin yet if you don't know them because they're like, what the fuck kind of names? He's a weird dude. It's like some fucking Dr. Seuss names.
1: By the end of his journalism career, Chucky edited a weekly journal for 20 years of his life. Not so bad for a kid who learned all his lessons on the hard, mean streets of London. Journalism allowed him to break in with the writing community. Chucky's first success uh, with publishing was with the Pickwick Papers when he was the ripe old age of 24 years old. That same year, he married Catherine Hogarth. Within a few years, Chucky was renowned. He published a lot of his work in an installment format. This is when you publish just a bit of a work at a time within a certain periodical. This allowed Chucky to evaluate his audience's reaction and change characters or plot or basically whatever he wanted based on the feedback he was getting during publishing.
0: It's pretty interesting, I think. Because that's, I mean, that's mostly just how people did shit back then. Like, it wasn't just him being weird. Um, And so it's interesting because, you know, you had things like, Will Ebenezer Scrooge learn the true meaning of Christmas? Stay tuned for the exciting conclusion. And obviously we have, like, multi-series books and stuff, but imagine just one book in multiple chunks that came out, like, once a month, which makes it kind of like old-timey fan fiction, which I know sounds weird but stay with me here. So, I mean, obviously it was original works, but in the sense of it coming out a chapter at a time and with the writer able to directly interact with fan reactions that could actually shape the direction of the story. So, you know, Dickens would, like you just said, modify characters and entire plots and things like that. So it's like if he's walking down the street and someone would be like, yo, that was a great chapter, but I think it would be better if... The Artful Dodger had knives for hands. And Dickens would be like, yeah, that sounds dope. And then the next installment would be like, oh, Artful Dodger, where where did your knife hands come from? Oh, they've just been here the whole time. I've always had these. It's just neat. I think it's kind of like interactive storytelling in a way. Because the readers are shaping what happens next, at least to some degree.
1: I think the closest analogy we might have nowadays is TV shows.
0: I mean, I, yeah, I mean, that's... It's not... The level of feedback isn't as intimate and individualized. In which? In TV.
1: you talk talking about it. I got Twitter.
0: Yeah. They but read you, Twitter. Yeah, but you ain't going to change the fucking, they ain't going to change the fucking plot of Breaking Bad for you.
1: They might have. <laughs> no. I don't know how it was going to play out.
0: <laughs> anyway.
1: Anyway. One of the things Megan left off that was really important to the whole periodical publishing thing was... Charles Dickens was probably one of the first writers who was able to reach a brand new audience known as the illiterate poor. Because what they, the poor people were able to do, even though they couldn't read and generally couldn't afford books, they were able to chip in a little bit of money for the periodicals in exchange for people to buy the periodicals and then read them the work they're in. And so a lot of Dickens's popularity came from the fact that there was a whole new readership that Dickens was able to reach. Uh, in 1842, at the age of 30, Charles visited America for the first time. Upon returning, he wrote extensively about the horrors of slavery. Some historians have said Dickens was a bit of a hypocrite on this point, as he seemed to tolerate friends with slaves in Jamaica, or at least he was not as outspoken on the issue as others in his circle were. A social justice warrior with a dark spot indeed.
0: Not keeping it at 100.
1: Uh, well. Welcome to 2017. As his career progressed, uh, Dickens realized that he and his public stances became very important to setting the morals of the society at large as his works were being consumed in a way that had not been consumed before. So he began to take very righteous stances and became hyper aware of how he portrayed himself as well as his thoughts in public. This may explain, at least in part, his philanthropy later in life. He was particularly a champion for causes that affected the working-class women and children who were forced into cheap labor. Dickens returned to America later in life when he was 56. He wanted to meet Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, as well as his American publisher, James Thomas Fields. The trip to America was pushed back a few years due to this small conflict called the American Civil War.
0: Eh, it'll blow over.
1: From my understanding here in twenty seventeen, I oh, believe God. the war was for states' rights to put gaudy and distasteful statutes <laughs> up all over the place.
0: You called them statutes, but good point.
1: Statues.
0: <laughs> I think that was, I think that was it. I think I saw a, a documentary or a dramatization on the History Channel about as much.
1: So Dickens was not in the best of health when he made it to America. By the end of his trip, the only food he could hold down, and things might not have been so bad, the only food he could hold down was champagne and eggs beaten in sherry.
0: He was just suffering, clearly. Oh, I can't, my poor constitution can't handle anything but the finest of champagnes. But you know what? He fucking spent his childhood working in a factory while people stared at him. Like, l- let him have this.
1: That's yeah, the breakfast of ye old English champions. It'll put hair on your chest.
0: It'll put hair somewhere.
1: I oh, See, what I wonder, though, is, like, how many foods did they test until they just settled on? <laughs> yes, the only thing I could eat is champagne. <laughs> And eggs beaten in cherry. That's the only combination of what I can concurrently consume. How
0: many things did they beat the eggs in first?
1: Dickens did write about America after the second trip that he saw a country that had changed and he would never denounce it again. Truth be told, he did not really get a chance to denounce America again or really denounce any country for that matter. Because after the trip, he basically just had a stroke and died. America killed him. It might, or it could have been or could the have champagne been. <laughs> and the eggs with sherry and nothing else. You or, know? or
0: it could have been about the carriage accident that you're not mentioning.
1: Look, the man was drinking champagne and eating eggs with sherry. There's not a lot of vitamins and minerals there as far as I'm like aware of. And then the stroke probably didn't help out. No. And so yeah, okay, there was a carriage. It crashed.
0: And he fucking like helped people at the scene and like was a brave fucking rescuer of people there.
1: Look, I don't know if you listen to our <laughs> shows, Meg. I don't blow these people up. I got to tear them down.
0: <laughs> I guess. Yeah.
1: Before he died, he managed to write 15 novels, five novellas, and hundreds of short stories. Since his death, Dickens has been praised by writers such as Leo Tolstoy, George Orwell, G.K. Chesterton. I don't know who that is. What? Yeah. There's also Oscar, Oscar Wilde, Henry James, and Virginia Woolf. Bunch they, of lowlife losers. They
0: don't, I was going to say, wait, they don't like him.
1: Oh, you're right. Yeah. Those three don't like yeah, him. Yeah, good, good track. But you know what? Now they do.
0: Yeah, no, Oscar Wilde and Virginia Woolf and that third person.
1: Henry James? Yeah,
0: criticized Dickens for being, like, you know, sort of overly moralistic and didactic and also just so completely saccharine and, like, sentimental to the point of where, like, Oscar Wilde had this quote, and I'm not going to get it direct, right? He talks about reading this one scene where, like, Little Nell, like, dies and that, He's like, you You got. You can't you help but just laugh your ass off while reading it because I'm Oscar Wilde and I say things like that. So, you know, he's, he's diggings. He was a little over the top with the sap sometimes. The last thing that he wrote actually was Our Mutual Friend. And you should be glad that we're reading this and not Our Mutual Friend, which has... Just dozens on dozens of characters, including a dude who's a table and clocks in at 801 pages. And yeah, I read them all. That fucker sits on my bookshelf just so I can brag about it to people. Is this going to be a thing? I mean, is this going to be a thing?
1: Maybe. Oh,
0: God. (laughs) The joke... Worked in the episode. Don't try to force it. Don't try to force it. Th- it was organic last time. All right? You can't make this shit happen. Then I won't. So. I'm gonna kick you. I'm gonna kick you in the taint. We're moving.
1: That's more dynamic of a song.
0: I'm gonna dynamic your face. So, the book opens with our hero, air quotes implied, Philip. Pirip. Pip. 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 He goes by Pip. Pippi. Mostly because he's a tiny child and he can't pronounce his own name either. So, Pip is a Victorian child protagonist. And you know what that means? His parents are dead. His caretakers are cruel. And his childhood is already terribly tragic. In this story, his caretaker is... Continue. His caretaker is his adult sister. Seriously, she's like explicitly stated as 20 years older than Pip, which makes you wonder what was going on with their parents before they died. She brings him up with her blacksmith husband. His name is Joe. Her name is Mrs. Joe. So already Dickens is just, you know, being fucking lazy. Joe's an okay guy, and he's nice to Pip, but Mrs. Joe is the worst. Just your garden-variety abusive Victorian caregiver beating him and telling him how lucky he is that she didn't leave him out in the street to die. Pip doesn't understand how such a nice guy like Joe could be married to such a roaring bitch, but such are the mysteries of the adult world. All Pip knows is that one second he was chilling out near his parents grave in the cemetery because apparently you're never too young to be a creep. And next, there's some gross, weird hobo man leaping out of nowhere and grabbing Pip by the throat and being all like, Bring me food and also a giant metal file or I'll cut your heart out! And he disappears back into the marshland. And uh, so Pip is understandably disturbed and complies with the scary marsh hobo's wishes, returning to the cemetery with the food and the file, even as he hears cannon fire that tells the village, Hey, a prisoner just escaped from our convict ship, so... Watch out! I'm sure this information is completely unrelated to the current situation.
1: Yeah, (laughs) that Chucky Dicky, are we just throwing extra stuff in there? Yeah,
0: just just random excess information.
1: Throws you off the path.
0: So Pip finds the Marsh hobo asleep, and against all self-preservation, Logic wakes him up to find, wait, that's not his hobo! It's some other dude, who also has a leg chain and is a convict, presumably, who freaks out and runs away. Also, I'm sure that will never be important either. Pip keeps looking and then finds his hobo, who's super happy about the food, but at the news that the Marsh is apparently lousy with escaped convict hobos, runs off. So Pip goes home and never sees the crazy Marsh convict man again.
1: That's a lie.
0: It is a lie. Pip's at home with Joe and Lady Joe in the middle of Christmas dinner. Mrs. Joe. Whatever. And uh, with a bunch of neighborhood characters with names like Wopsle and Pumblechook, because... Well, it's those, those queer names you heard about.
1: <laughs> to make up for his own queer name. And
0: it's just fun to say them in silly voices. Mr. Pemberchuck. Anyway, the dinner is interrupted by a group of soldiers who are looking for some escaped convicts. And Pip gets kind of weirdly possessive, like, gosh, I hope it's not my convict since he's special because he's mine. Which is pretty affectionate feelings for a dude who just recently threatened to cut his heart out. Anyway, the soldiers find Pip's special convict beating the ever-loving shit out of the other convict Pip saw earlier, claiming that he wanted to make sure the other convict didn't escape his just fate. Sure, why not?
1: Justice. Yes,
0: hobo justice. He recognizes Pip, but doesn't mention it, although he does take credit for stealing the food that Pip actually stole to bring him, so, like, that's kind of nice of him. The soldiers take him away, and that's the end of that. We learn that Joe is Pip's only real friend and genuinely loves him and is actually the one who insisted that they adopt him. So, like, fuck you, Mrs. Joe. You know the drill. Pip must be torn from this loving, healthy relationship. And this tear comes in the form of a declaration from Miss Havisham, resident wealthy recluse and town weirdo, who has requested Pip to be a playmate for her daughter. Why? I I don't know. The book doesn't know. The book doesn't care.
1: They wanted to keep this, Gwyneth this Paltrow is, is away happening. from Christopher Martin. What? Isn't it played back to Gwyneth Paltrow in the movie? I, yeah, that was. That she has a kid named Apple. That's a bad joke. That's they a, named their child Apple. They did, their child Apple. <laughs> they
0: did name their child Apple, but it's still a bad joke.
1: Ethan Hawke played Pip.
0: Yes. Yeah, you, you are correct.
1: I'd much rather my daughter play with Ethan Hawke than uh, Chris Martin.
0: Yeah, but only one of them still has a career.
1: Ethan Hawke. Nope.
0: Yeah. Name the last movie Ethan Hawke was in. Gattaca 2. Still gattaca
1: Gattaca- harder? (laughs) The gattaca name.
0: Pip goes to Miss Havisham's house and it is very metaphorical. It's a grand mansion that is now old and crumbling and haunted-y. There he meets a little girl his own age who nonetheless calls Pip boy and is very, very pretty. Which is a weird observation to make since she's fucking six but whatever dickens you goddamn weirdo he distracts the reader with a different goddamn weirdo miss havisham herself she is also highly metaphorical extremely old and wearing a very expensive wedding dress that's also extremely yellowed with white hair and big old creepy eyes and a tattered wedding veil and one shoe i bet she's a nice lady
1: she has no let go of her dream (laughs)
0: She's hanging on, but we're gonna find out about that dream in a bit. In the meantime, Miss Havisham introduces the girl as Estella. And Estella is super mean to Pip, making him feel poor and ugly and terrible. And Miss Havisham asks Pip how he feels and he's like, terrible! And like, I want to go home! And she's like, good! And she makes Estella take him out to the front porch and give him food like he's a dog boy. And he cries and Estella, I don't know, drinks it down in a mug because she's terrible? then he goes home hating himself and wishing not that Estella was less terrible but that he wasn't so poor and ugly poor little Pip poor little baby Oh,
1: well, maybe you shouldn't be so poor and ugly I know yeah get with the program guy seriously
0: so Pip's sister's like so what happened and Pip doesn't even know what to say like well Miss Havisham is completely crazy and probably peed in the dress she's wearing and she had a little girl who made me feel bad for an hour and then they gave me some food and then I went home
1: is it weird that I'm rock hard <laughs>
0: A little bit, yeah. (laughs) Pip starts to change after this bit of weirdness. He wants to better himself and not be common. And he starts by actually learning to read and write, being taught by this kind, extremely smart girl around his own age named Biddy, which seems like a pretty cruel name for a young girl. One night... Well, one
1: day she'll be old. She she has to grow (laughs) into her name.
0: (laughs) Well, anyway, one night after school... He goes into a local bar to collect Joe, who's been drinking there, and finds that Joe has a new drinking buddy who's looking at Pip like he knows him and asking Pip a lot of questions. Because Dickens is the master of subtlety, he removes any ambiguity by having this dude stir his drink with the metal file Pip brought the convict. Gee, I wonder who this mystery man could be.
1: The Uh, ghost of Christmas future? Maybe. Who the fuck stirs (laughs) a drink with a file?
0: Yeah, it's weird. Seems kind of gross. Not very sanitary. Well, then the man goes to leave and gives Pip a little bag of change, which Pip is stoked if confused about. And actually, the paper that the change is tied up in is also money. It's a cool, weird hobo man gave him money. And then that scene ends again. But whatever, it's time for Pip to head back to Shea Havisham where shit gets really weird. Because instead of indulging in whatever humiliation fetish she's got going on, we learn that it's her Birthday and her family has come to tell her that she's fucking weird and they're very worried about her And they have good reason to be as she takes Pip into a room with a long table covered in Whatever stage food moves to when it's like 20 years past rotting and is like This was supposed to be my wedding feast and when I die they're going to lay me down on it
1: she's pretty good exterminators
0: well no it it says that they're crawling with weird nasty gross bugs Uh and shit so
1: no they didn't call truly truly that's gonna be funny to anyone funny to be
0: though there you go that's
1: half the battle
0: Vaguely traumatized, Pip heads outside where he sees another little boy who challenges Pip to a fish fight. And they have, like, a little baby slap fight. And Pip wins pretty easily. And Estella, who was watching them, I guess, is all like, Oh, Pip, wow, you're so strong. You can kiss me on the cheek if you want. And he does.
1: On the ass cheek?
0: Sure, why not. This goes on That's mostly.
1: only what a boy like Kim is allowed to kiss.
0: Gross. <laughs> this goes on- for some months, with Pip wheeling Miss Havisham around the garden and her nightmare room while she trains Estella in the ways of nagging. Eventually, Havisham's like, Pip, you're looking fairly pubescent. What are your life plans? And he's like, I don't know. I'm gonna be like a blacksmith, like my dad slash best friend Joe. And Havisham's like, bring that fool in here. And he does. And Joe is, like, super nervous and trying so hard to act fancy, and Pip's like, just be yourself. Except then once they're in front of Miss Havisham and he changes his mind, is like, Never mind. Yourself is terrible. Everything is terrible. Why are we so poor and embarrassing? And Pip, please don't let the psychotic old woman in the pea-stained wedding dress hurt your self-esteem. Anyway, Ham Shavings gives Joe a pretty huge chunk of money as payment for letting Pip be Estella's emotional punching bag and says Pip can use it for his blacksmith apprenticeship, and also that they're done with each other and get the hell off her property. Pip is sad that he won't get to see Estella again because Pip is an idiot. So Pip gets on with his apprenticeship. Meanwhile, Biddy is still teaching him reading and writing, and Pip is in turn teaching Joe. Not out of any sense of decency, but because he's embarrassed of him. So, you know, real nice, Pip. Uh, Working at the smithy alongside Joe and Pip is Orlick, a dude who basically comes with a bright neon warning sign that says, I am a dickhead and not to be trusted. He is just super mean and surly, and Dickens stops just short of having him, like, bite the head off a live puppy when he's introduced. Instead, when Pip asks for a half day to go visit House Havisham, Orlick is all, Well, why should he get time off? That's bullshit. This is bullshit. And Joe's like, um, okay. Everyone gets the day off? Except then Mrs. Joe appears out of whatever, like, fucking dark void she occupies and is like, why do you have to be such goddamn pushover? And her and Orlick insult each other, and so Joe has to punch Orlick in the face, and then Mrs. Joe faints, and Pip is just like, holy shit, what is happening? I'm leaving, bye.
1: Fun Man times. of strong character.
0: Oh yeah, the strongest. Unfortunately, upon reaching Casa de Crazy, he learns that Estella isn't there, but in France, learning how to be even better at being hot and destroying people emotionally so now Pip is even sadder. Also, that night, he runs into Orlick, crouching on the side of the road like some kind of feral animal, which is definitely a normal thing people do, and gets home to find his sister, unconscious, having been conked on the head by someone. But who? No, but, but really, these dipshits are like, well, maybe it was another escaped convict, but who knows, it is a mystery. Maybe that's the real greatest English mystery. Either way, the knock on the head did a number on Mrs. Joe because she can't really walk or talk and even has a hard time seeing. But she's a lot nicer now, I guess. Biddy moves in to help take care of her because Biddy is also just the only one in town who helps people. And so Pip starts to notice Biddy more now that she's living with him. He sees that she's not just growing into a beautiful young woman, but also warm and kind and patient. In fact, he realizes that Biddy's the perfect girl to listen to him whine about how Estella was mean and called him common, but also how badly he wants to not be common and also to fuck Estella. So Biddy's a good listener, and Pip tells her that gosh, he wishes he could just make himself love Biddy because then life would be so much easier. And Biddy, kindly, saintly Biddy, somehow refrains from strangling him. At this point... Pip is four years into his apprenticeship, and then a lot of things happen very quickly for, like, literally the only time in this book. Pip and Joe are chilling at the bar when yet another, in an apparently long line of mysterious dudes, appears, saying that he's a lawyer named Mr. Jaggers. There's, there's another great name. I'm a lawyer. My name is Jaggers, and it sounds like daggers, because lawyers are sharp and mean.
1: I call Mick. Megan, why can't you get no satisfaction?
0: i guess my expectations are just too great uh speaking of actually mr jaggers gets to name drop the title when he tells pip that he's got some great expectations which here means a person who chooses to remain unknown is going to give you an obscene amount of money so you can go to london and learn to be a fancy man some money and some new clothes and your new fancy man tutor is some dude named Matthew Pocket and he's also Miss Havisham's cousin but maybe don't read too much into it and boom like that Pip's life is completely different and Pip is super jazzed to go be a gentleman and before you can say later fuckers he's leaving his family for London. Pip is dropped off at a shabby apartment that's going to be his new home where he meets Matthew Pocket's son Herbert who is very nice and gives Pip strawberries and then they look at each other like really look, and they realize they've met before.
1: In each other's dreams.
0: Well, maybe, but mostly. Herbert's the weird little pale kid that Pip beat the hell out of at Miss Havisham's when he was six years old. And Herbert, meanwhile, is like, hey, I'm sorry I beat you up back then. And Pip's just like, yeah, however you want to remember it, champ. And they become friends. So it turns out that Herbert was actually Miss Havisham's first choice as Estella's training wheels punching bag but he was just too much of a soft boy. But this also means he has all the deals on the whack job in a wedding dress that is Miss Havisham. Essentially, she was a spoiled only child until her dad screwed around with the cook and suddenly she had a gross half-brother named Arthur. And they fucking hated each other. They grew up, the dad died, and he left most of the money to Miss Havisham. And she was also apparently, like, pretty hot a And she got engaged to a dude that no one trusted. In fact, Herbert's dad, specifically, was like, Hey, maybe don't marry this sketchy dude. And Miss Havisham responded to this familial concern with, Fuck you, I do what I want, fuck off. Also, I'm following his advice and buying Arthur's share of our father's brewery at a huge cost to myself, because... reasons. And you can imagine what happens next. Mysterious and untrustworthy suitor ditches Havisham on her wedding day, turning out to be working with Arthur to screw her out of her fortune and humiliate her. And it worked! And at some point, she acquired Estella, somehow, and has been bringing her up to destroy men because of vengeance. So, that's neat. Also, Herbert is pretty sure that Miss Shimmy Sham is also Pip's mysterious benefactor. Pip chews on that for a while as he starts his new life living in the pocket household that consists of, like, 15 kids and some sassy servants and two other students, Drummel and Startop, because, sure, those are names and getting tutored in gentlemanness by Dad Pocket. Eventually, Pip and Herbert move out and get a sweet swinging bachelor pad. At one point, all four of the students have dinner at the lawyer Mr. Jaggers' house, and it's weird, and the vibes are so bad that the boys all start arguing with each other about random things, and then Jaggers is like, Hey, Pip, look at my maid, Molly. She never talks, but look how big and strong her scarred hands and arms are. And what the fuck, Jaggers? Like... What's your deal? But yeah, no, I'm sure we'll never hear about Molly and her weirdly strong hands and arms ever again. Just more of that extraneous plot information.
1: Got the moves like Jagger.
0: (laughs) So Joe comes to visit Pip, and it's awkward because Pip is a fancy boy now, and he lives in a fancy apartment, and he even hired a boy of his own to be a servant, except there's actually nothing for the kid to do, so he's just there the corner (laughs) just hanging out and everyone is just super uncomfortable and it sucks and the servant boy is probably the most uncomfortable but joe has some news miss havisham has summoned pip because estella is back and wants to see him and pip despite all the schooling he's been getting is still a big fat idiot and is super psyched to go see her he returns home and he's just so fucking psyched to see estella and even as he's thinking about how mean she is. But it must be destiny, right? Because after all, Miss Havisham is apparently secretly paying out the ass to turn Pip into a gentleman, so it must be because she wants him and Estella to get married and have a million babies, right? Pip gets to the mansion and meets the new gatekeeper, and it's Orlick, that jackass who paralyzed his sister. But whatever, there's no time to think about that. Estella's here, and she's all grown up and sexier than ever. And also still terrible and just ice-cold to Pip, who's just completely, utterly oblivious. Then it gets really weird, because Havisham starts yelling at Pip that he better love Estella, no matter what, until it breaks his soul. She's literally being like, Love her! Love her! I built her to be loved! So, but I don't even know what the fuck is happening with that. And then he goes back to London! And he tells Herbert how Estella is so pretty and that he's destined to marry her and that also she just absolutely hates him. In fact, not even hates him because that implies a passion and feeling that just isn't there. Estella feels about Pip the same way she feels about a rock on the side of the road or like a dust bunny. But their totes going to get married, you guys.
1: Spoilers.
0: <laughs> That's not spoilers unless you say it's spoilers. Then they know it's spoilers. Spoilers. And then she comes to London and they wander around and she tells Pip how shitty it was being raised by No Wedding McCrazy Face. And apparently,
1: Pip! Pip, it was very bad to be raised. Why why does
0: she sound like like a two inch tall Princess Zelda?
1: It was very bad (laughs) being raised by No Wedding Something (laughs) Face. Good, good job. Oh, no. <laughs>
0: that's how she sounds. That's that's just how Estella talks. It's, it's in canon.
1: Remember me.
0: <laughs> also, she has an
1: accent now. <laughs> I am. But Estella.
0: Well, either way, a- apparently childhood strife and high-pitched squeaky voices <laughs> give Pip a major boner and he starts kissing Estella. We knew this
1: already when he told his sister he had that major heart on.
0: He starts kissing Estella, who refuses to acknowledge that this is happening. Instead, she tells him that she's going to be living in London for a while, and Pip is expected to visit her as often as is proper, for some reason. Meanwhile, Pip gets some news. It seems his sister, Mrs. Joe, has died.
1: Something, 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 I'll see you again.
0: Holy <laughs> shit! Something, 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 I'll see you again.
1: Yeah
0: it's been a long day it's been a you.
1: long day without, without you. you my sister <laughs> but don't you worry I'll see you again that's not the line we're family <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes
0: that's how the song goes it just has Vin Diesel coming in at the chorus and just saying we're family <laughs> <laughs> Joe. (laughs) I live my life one mile at a time, Joe.
1: (laughs) I'll miss you. But we're family. I'll remember you.
0: Except no, because actually the opposite of that happens. Pip comes home and it's it's super awkward and weird like it always is now. And he says, hey, Biddy, I'm going to come home and I'm going to take care of you and Joe now. And she's like, no, you won't. And he's like, yeah, you're right. I won't. And he doesn't.
1: They ain't family.
0: <laughs> Apparently not.
1: Me and you, Mrs. Joe, we's family.
0: <laughs> and I'm sure he'll tell her all about it when he sees her again. When I see
1: you again.
0: <laughs> Instead,
1: I ain't dying yet.
0: He turns. I got
1: too many miles to go. Oh jeez.
0: He turns 21 and gets a 500 pounds a week allowance from his inheritance. Mr. Jagger still won't tell him who his mysterious benefactor is, but. Miss Havisham seems like a pretty safe bet at this point. In the meantime, Estella parades Pip around town to make other boys jealous, and flirts with those other boys. Boys like Pip's school friend, Drummle, who I mentioned that one time. And even though it's very clear and obvious that Estella only means to use and abuse these men, Pip, the dipshit that he is, is still off to the side like, Gosh, I wish that were me. Ugh. He even goes with her to visit Miss Havisham, who demands a blow-by-blow account of all the men that Estella has ruined so far. But then gets mad when Estella is, like, cold to her and won't, like, give her any affection. And Estella's like, you literally raised me to not have feelings, so this one's kinda on you, dude. And through it all, Pip's just sitting there, with a big dumb smile on his face like, yeah, gonna marry that one. Two years pass. And on Pip's 23rd birthday, he gets a mysterious visitor on his doorstep that night. Who could it possibly be?
1: It's me, it's your family.
0: <laughs> it's Vin Diesel! It's, or what's, it's Dom, it's Dominic Toretto.
1: Hey.
0: <laughs> Come race cars with me, or family.
1: We're family now.
0: Um, <laughs> I wish it was Vin Diesel.
1: I got a two seat car. And no one's sitting passenger yet.
0: That's not a line from anything.
1: <laughs> You're going to be my bitch now.
0: Um, that's, that would be a very different film. You're uh, riding bitch, Pip. Please, please stop. No, it's not Vin Diesel. It's Pip's special convict. That That's weird. Magwith? We haven't gotten to that point yet.
1: Magwith? We'll get there. Magwith?
0: And he remembers Pip, and he recognizes him, and not even that, he knows Pip, which freaks Pip out a bit. And he's like, look, if, if I give you money, will you leave? And the convict's like, yeah, yeah, I bet you got a lot of money, don't you? Winky face. And Pip's like, uh, I mean, and he's like, yeah, yeah, but you're the very picture of a wealthy gentleman, and you want to know why? Because that's my money, son! Pip's mysterious benefactor and fairy godmother is... Not Miss Havisham, but this gross old marsh hobo who's been farming sheep in Australia for all these years, spending loads of money to turn Pip into a gentleman because... Spite! Yeah, he says that society denied him the destiny of being a gentleman, so he decided to take Tiny Pip all those years ago and mold him into a revenge gentleman. Which sounds sort of familiar to someone else raising someone for vengeance, but I'm sure it's nothing. Pip lets convict McSheep Farmer spend the night, and has to face the horrible truth that, no, Miss Havisham did not pay to make him a fancy boy, so no, she never meant for him to marry Estella. Duh. But, if nothing else, at least he finally gets it. Except no, he fucking doesn't. There are still 20 chapters left. The next morning, Pip actually bothers to ask the guy his fucking name, since he's just been Pip's special convict for the past 39 chapters. Now you can say it. Uh-huh. You can say the guy's name now.
1: Who's? Dom?
0: No. Pip Pip Special Convict Man. Wemick? Marsh Hobo. No. Jaggers? No. You know it's not Jaggers <laughs>
1: we... w- Whoopsel?
0: No, it's not it's not Wopsle,
1: Arthur Havisham?
0: No, we mentioned him already. Oh, Orwick. It's Magwitch Which sounds like the name of some weird Harry Potter animal. And he tells Pip that, A, he's here in secret, because if the authorities ever found him back in England, they'd probably kill him. And B, he's just so excited to live that gentleman's life with Pip as BFF's Five Ever. Oh, and then Herbert comes home, and Pip has to be like, Hey, buddy, this is Magwitch, he's an escaped criminal who also made lots of money farming sheep apparently. Anyway, he's my secret benefactor and the architect of my destiny, and he lives here now. Also, he slept in your bed last night. Herbert's solution is for Pip and Magwitch to run away from England together, and Pip's like, well, I'm never gonna get to bone Estella, so why not? But first, Magwitch has to tell the boys his life story, because of course he does. Okay. So, Magwitch was a poor orphan boy and ended up in jail like a hundred times, and then one day he meets a dude named Comp Comp Compeyeyson. Compartment. who is a con man and is very good at pretending to be a gentleman and swindling stupid people. Companero wanted Magwitch to be his new crime partner because his old one is an extremely ill and kind of crazy dude named Arthur and wait a minute! Yes. It turns out that Compeyson is the one who left Miss Havisham at the altar after stealing her money with her half-brother because there are no coincidences and everyone is somehow connected to each other because Great Expectations is basically operating on the same rules as the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Any minute now, Iron Man's gonna show up. It's gonna be great. Eventually, Magwitch and Compeyton Manning get caught counterfeiting money and Magwitch gets a jillion years in prison because he's poor and gross and his name Magwitch. But Pedro is just so good at acting like a proper fancy boy that he gets a much lighter sentence. And oh, also, he's the dude Magwitch beat the shit out of in the marsh all those years ago. Also, Magwitch mentioned something in passing about a girlfriend, but it's totally nothing. Don't worry about it. Forget I even mentioned it. So Pip and Magwitch are gonna get out of England. But of course, before he can do that, Pip has to go visit Estella and Havisham one last time
1: one last time <laughs> yeah
0: can you remember anything beyond that line
1: one last time
0: <laughs> he's gonna teach him how to say goodbye
1: one last time
0: yeah <laughs> yeah Lin-Manuel is so proud of you
1: Hamilton Hamilton <laughs> hey my name is Hamilton Hamilton what's his name <laughs> Hamilton, Hamilton. Okay,
0: I got. I got to put a stop to your one-man <laughs> Hamilton review there because we we still got some time. We got. We got some ways to go still.
1: Writing, writing, <laughs> no. always with the writing, writing. <laughs> Why can't he stop? Okay, writing, all right. This, this is this is gonna
0: be another another time. We'll do a, sp- a very special R.J. sings all of Hamilton. So he goes back to see Estella and Havisham, and once he's back in his hometown, he runs into Drumble. That one guy he went to school with, who I said Estella was flirting with, that guy. Apparently he and Estella are getting pretty serious, and Pip has a shit fit. He finally gets to shams and is like, You were never my benefactor, but you totally pretended to be, you evil old bag. And she's just like, Yep, you got me. And he professes his deep and undying love for Estella, who just looks at him like, Dude, I have no love feelings inside me. This has been established. I'm going to marry Drummle and then snap his stupid heart in two and I'll probably do it again to someone else because my upbringing has made me a completely broken person and why does no one talk about this more? Like, it's a horrible way for a child to be brought up. Jesus. But lest we have a moment away from Pip's man pain, he makes an impassioned speech about love and feelings and how Estella is literally his entire stupid life. And then he leaves. When he gets back to his apartment, he's alerted to that comp- compi compis- 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 that dude we just learned about who's dangerous and hates Magwitch because Magwitch beat the shit out of him. Yeah, he's in town now. So Pip and Magwitch make a plan to get away. Now, what do you think this elaborate plan might be? I'll tell you what—it's not. He's not. He's not going to get into a car with Vin Diesel and drive away. Here's the plan: Pip's going to get really good at rowing, like really really good at rowing. And once he can row super good, he's going to row him and Magwitch out to the fucking ocean and get picked up by a passing ship. There's got to be an easier way than that to get out of England. Like seriously, like I know Magwitch is like wanted and all, but like they got money. Surely there are other means. So at some point during all of his preparatory rowing, that one weird lawyer dude, Mr. Jaggers, invites Pip over nah, for me. dinner again. And uh, Pip's like, yeah, sure, why not? And he sees Jaggers' equally weird maid, Molly, again. But this time he, like, really sees her. She kind of looks like Estella. Yeah, just like everyone else in this fucking book. She's not just some lady with the abnormally strong and large hands and arms. She's some lady with abnormally strong and large hands and arms that Mr. Jagger saved from getting the death penalty from killing another woman out of some fit of jealousy. In return for the favor, she became his maid. But she also had this kid who was, like, going to be abandoned and stuff. And it's this complicated thing about how he got her off from, like, the death penalty by saying, like, she killed her child instead. And so there's this child now we gotta get rid of. And, um, hey, Jagger's also worked as the lawyer for a crazy old lady who was looking for a daughter to mold into a guided, heartbreaking missile and Estella's real mom is a crazy maid lady. But it doesn't end there. Pip's on a real Sherlock Holmes-ass tear now, and he goes back to Miss Havisham's house where she's gone even crazier because now she actually feels guilty for all the bad shit she's done. She confirms Jagger's story, tries to give Pip money, and begs his forgiveness and then catches on fire. In roughly that order. She'll be fine. It's, it's fine. It's okay. Besides, Pip needs to run back to fucking Jaggers because Pip has figured out how this stupid book works. He, he sees the machinations and he asks Jaggers if Magwitch, a.k.a. Mysterious Benefactor, is also Estella's dad. What do you think? Yes. Yeah, you're, you're correct. Of course he fucking is. Except he's thought that Estella's been dead all these years. And Jaggers never told him he wasn't, so, you know, way to be a dick, Jaggers. So Estella's real parents are a murder maid, and a convict marsh hobo turned sheep farmer. Before he could try to track her down and rub this in her face, he <laughs> It's finally time for the Pip and Magwitch boat plan, thank God. Except there's another boat that's following them, and on board that boat is... Compison, out for boat vengeance. And he and Magwitch have a fight in the water, and Magwitch gets wounded, but he makes it back on the boat. Competonk man does not. R.I.P. Compeyson. We knew ye well, but actually not so much at all. They get caught, and Magwitch is arrested for not being in Australia. Also, the government takes all his money, and Pip is broke now. But Magwitch is going to die of his wounds before he ever makes it to prison, and on his deathbed, Pip tells him that his daughter is alive, and also super beautiful, but leaves out the part about how she's a heartless monster. And then Magwitch dies. R.I.P. Magwitch. At some point, you farmed some sheep. And the book is still happening, my god. Pip becomes horribly ill, and his debtors come to try to make him pay the money, and he just sort of barfs on them, but luckily, Joe comes to his rescue, paying all of his debts and nursing Pip back to health, all of which is more than he deserved, considering what a shit he's been to Joe. Also, he learns that Miss Havisham died. R.I.P. Havisham. Bitch was cray. So Pip's like, all right, Fuck this gentleman bullshit straight to hell. I'm going to marry Biddy and be a blacksmith with Joe. Except, hey, guess what, dingbat? Biddy hasn't just been sitting in a corner like, hey, where's Pip? Is Pip ever coming back? My life revolves around Pip. No, she's already gotten married to Joe. I mean, it's kind of weird because she's Pip's age and Joe is 20 years older than them. Ew, gross. 11 years pass. Yeah, I know. Whatever. Fuck it. We're in the homestretch. So Pip would be like 34, I guess, which would pit Joe at mid-50s, which I only mentioned because um, once Pip comes to visit for the first time in 11 fucking years because he's been, you know, overseas with Herbert doing things and sees Joe and Biddy have a baby that looks like Pip. That they named Pip, which is, you know, pretty weird,
1: they were inventive with naming just like everyone else at the time yeah yeah
0: but but pip's not like the dad or anything like that it's just your name pip after a guy that neither of us are related well, to.
1: last week we had philadelphia named after philadelphia named after philadelphia and they were like cousins and sandwiches and cities it's all over the place uh,
0: there pip, pip's popping up right and left um that's a little too weird. So Pip leaves and is walking by the ruins of the Havisham mansion and he thinks of Estella for the first time in a long time. Now, this is where it gets interesting, relatively speaking. For you see, Dickens wrote two endings. The original, which people decided was too sad, and the rewritten one that's basically a big old Disney happy ending. So, the Disney ending is what you would assume. While lurking by the remains of the mansion, Who should see Pip but Estella, and she's still beautiful, but older and sadder, and apparently Drummle was a dick and beat her, but then he was killed by a horse, and because she was so sad, she can apparently feel feelings like a person now, which is kind of fucked up reasoning. But whatever. She loves Pip back now, and they walk away from the mansion arm in arm and are presumably together forever and ever and have 30 babies.
1: Depends how you read that final line. You put your flag in the sand.
0: Well, because he says he never sees himself... What is it? He never sees the shadow of their parting.
1: He sees no shadow of another parting from her.
0: So, I mean, you could either interpret that as we were together forever or I thought we would be together forever. Yeah. So, a little little bit of ambiguity there, but it's still very much the Disney ending in contrast to what was the original unseen director's cut ending. In that one... Pip only hears about Estella's shitty marriage and Drummle's death by horse in passing, and also that she remarried a doctor who rescued her from Drummle, and then two more years pass to find Pip walking through London with smaller Pip when they're stopped on the street by Estella. Like the Disney ending, she is sadder now, but also better, and then she gives small Pip a kiss on the cheek and they just sort of part ways. Two endings. One happy, one bittersweet, neither particularly fulfilling. The end. That's Great Expectations. Finn. It's a million fucking years long.
1: So sour.
0: I am always.
1: That other guy fucked a horse. You kind of glossed over that one.
0: No, well, no, he didn't fuck a horse.
1: Yeah, he did he fucked a horse. He got killed by the horse.
0: He didn't fuck the horse.
1: What do you think? Pissed the horse off.
0: He was like abusing it.
1: He... Like yes, he abuses thank everything.
0: you. But that doesn't mean fucking. Okay. Okay. In terms of adaptations, there have been well over a dozen film and stage adaptations with sequels and, and spinoffs, including Magwitch's Adventures in Australia, because that's something we were all clamoring for. But nothing so weird as to really be worth discussing. I mean, they're all pretty straightforward adaptations. Oh, something that I did want to say that I didn't say earlier. So I read this book in... school i think near the very end of high school but the first time i read it was actually when i was in like fourth grade they have these like kids classic versions of books where they take like a classic novel and they distill it down to like a fourth grade reading level and then they put pictures in which seems like a very weird concept and i have a very clear memory of reading a tom sawyer one and great expectations and i don't remember anything about it except Because it was illustrated, this the pictures of Miss Havisham were fucking creepy. I just just this weird wrinkled old woman with like these big bug eyes, and I just that's seared into my brain. That's what I think of when I think of Great Expectations. Mm -hmm. All right, then it's that time again, RJ. What's up? Great Expectations, good or great?
1: Lived up to. I like the book
0: because
1: wrote a thesis on it.
0: True. Didn't want to talk about it.
1: It's written in the past.
0: Subject of the thesis.
1: Great expectations. Colon. A thesis. Liar. Comma. Or is it? Question mark. <laughs> Parentheses. It is. <laughs> by RJ. Read Bleak House. Don't read at Great Expectations.
0: Read Bleak House. It's also like 800 fucking pages long. Have fun with that. Suffer.
1: It's better. Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ. You got opinions? Always how about about great expectations
0: <laughs> that took you a second i don't know like all right
1: then that'll do it another great episode i don't know what cost. oh my god i'm megan it's,
0: give me look, just because you're a big tired baby i don't get to say my my piece dickens is just like very clever and very witty and every detail is tied into the overall story and you know there's so many moving parts that he has to make happen. But also this book is a million years long and Pip is an idiot and and just just there's there's so many people and they all have big stupid names and and big stupid personalities. And it all kind of comes down to how much of it can you take? And my thing is, I think I prefer my Dickens in, in more distilled forms. I think I go more for the short stories than the interminable novels. But, like, dude's funny. And, you know, you write a sentence real good. Megan
1: Met- has the attention span of a housefly.
0: It's true. That'll about do it for us on this episode of Onola oh Class. Our next episode will be on September 14th. If you like this, if you listen to it every time we do a new one, against all odds, remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe to us on iTunes, leave us reviews, preferably nice ones, but, you know, negative ones are, I guess, kind of entertaining. I don't know. We like it when you say nice things about us. It makes us feel pretty and loved. You can listen to us anywhere, everywhere, always. We're actually outside your window right now. Don't look! oh, we hid. You just missed us. We were right there. But we're always at onolitclass.com. This week's awesome podcast friend is actually one of our first podcast friends, and that's Kate over at Strange Animals, where you learn all kinds of weird, awesome, and sometimes horrifying things about cool animals that are an affront to God. Sort of. She's a lot nicer than but I'll let her tell you herself. Strange Animals Podcast brings you weekly episodes about surprising, mysterious, or just plain strange animals. From the vampire squid to the unicorn, tune in to discover your new favorite animal. Check us out on strangeanimalspodcast.com or listen on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Thank you to Best Day, as always. I guess SoundCloud still exists, so you can still listen to his music at soundcloud.com slash best dash day. So, do that. I'm Megan.
1: I'm family.
0: (laughs) We hope this met your expectations. And we love you. Bye.
1: I'm Scottish.
0: Oh, no you're not. (laughs)